Are we doing this? Really? Wait for it. Are we doing this? Wait for it. How? What the fuck? WTF. And it's also, eh, what the fuck? What's wrong with me? It's time for WTF. What the fuck? With Mark Marin. Hello, folks. This is Mark Marin. This is WTF with me. Mark Marin, you know what that stands for. This is our pilot episode, our launch, our first show. I'll go ahead and say it. What the fuck? That is the question. That is the eternal question. You know, in life and in the history of mankind, the philosophical question, the great philosophical question used to be, what is the meaning of life? And then I think it evolved into, how am I being used and am I okay with that? And now I think we are at a different juncture in the history of culture And the eternal philosophical question is, what the fuck? Seriously. Really? What the fuck? I mean, that's a question I ask myself a lot about a lot of things. But also, we want to deal with the the lighter side of WTF, which is, what the fuck? So you got both sides. You got righteous indignation, and you also got, why not live a little? It's an expressive type of saying. WTF, and, I, and I'm glad you're tuning in. I'm glad you've picked up this podcast. If you want to email the podcast, you can email us at WTFpod at gmail.com. You can also Twitter at Twitter.com, and the name is WTFpod. I just felt like it was time to do this. It was time to focus. It was time to, to ask these questions about mundane things, about political things, about personal things. And just getting out there again. I I know a lot of you have listened to me in many different forms over the years. And I think this will be the freest of all of them. This will be the most unfiltered and the most representative of of where I'm at. And and I'll try to keep it as personal as possible. And and also, I just don't know what the fuck half the time. So I hopefully, you know, through this show and through a... Hanging out with you people and my friends and some comedians. We're going to have Jeff Ross on here in just a bit. So on this episode, this opening episode, some of my what the fuckness was was resolved by a fairly radical action through stealing. I'm not proud of it. I'm not necessarily confessing it. That's up to you to decide. But I was liberated by being a thief. But let's start here. I never liked Whole Foods. I never wanted to shop there. I found it reprehensible for a lot of reasons. And this is before the CEO, uh, John Mackey, made his statements in the editorial section of the Wall Street Journal. I just didn't like Whole Foods because I thought it was elitist. I thought it was overpriced. I thought it was a sham somehow. I think that the salad bar there gives you diarrhea for specific reasons. I had I got diarrhea from the salad bar at Whole Foods, and I realized that how can you not get diarrhea from the salad bar at Whole Foods? Because where does that food come from? Why are those vegetables at the salad bar? Because they're good, fresh, nice vegetables? No, because they're about to go bad. What do you think the salad bar is? What do you think soup is? This is about to go bad. Put it in a pot. Boil it up for the soup. Hey, this lettuce doesn't look so good. Well, let's let's mix dressing with it and make it the, the spinach salad or make it the Caesar salad on the salad bar. If you put dressing on it, they're not going to know it's wilted. What about these carrots? Are they soft? No, they're close. So cut, cut them up, put them in the salad bar. That salad bar, it should just be diarrhea. Is that disgusting? But listen to me. I, I mean, this isn't the, the issue. I, I hate Whole Foods because 
It's overpriced. Everything is overpriced. Right? That's a big enough problem. I'm glad everybody wants to be healthy and everybody should be able to have access to healthy things. But at Whole Foods, because of the elitism involved, you can't be healthy unless you can afford it. And, and notwithstanding, there's no indication that organic vegetables are any better for you than non-organic vegetables. Look, you'll adapt to pesticide. What are we, a bunch of pussies all of a sudden? In terms of nutrients, they're no different. That's why I don't bother with it. I shop at a vegetable stand in Astoria from a guy with a Greek accent. And I know how this stuff works. The Koreans do it too, with the moving the stuff that's going bad up to the front and lowering the price. That's what the salad bar at Whole Foods is. I don't have any proof on this other than I got to swipe food poisoning from it once before. But this isn't the issue. The issue is a couple of weeks ago, John Mackey, the CEO of Whole Foods, wrote an editorial in the Wall Street Journal against healthcare. Now, he said a lot of things that were a lot of wrong. There was a lot of libertarian wrong-mindedness in John Mackey's Wall Street Journal op-ed, uh, some of it being about tort reform, some of it being about uh, you know, you know, stopping regulations that enable insurance companies to go cross state lines, which I think will only lead to bigger monopolizations, not more competitive markets. There's a lot of bullshit in this editorial. But the one thing that interests me the most was these couple of paragraphs. Many promoters of healthcare reform believe that people have an intrinsic ethical right to healthcare, to equal access to doctors, medicines, and hospitals. While all of us empathize with those who are sick, how can we say that all people have more of an intrinsic right to healthcare than they have to food or shelter? What I extrapolate from that paragraph is let the poor die. It's not our fault. Our hearts go out to them. But, you know, if you can't afford the good food or you can't afford the health care or you don't have a job or your car is dangerous because you can't get it fixed, you just lost the game. Thanks for playing extreme capitalism. Sorry, there are a lot of losers and you're one of them. Here's the next paragraph uh, right underneath the one before. Healthcare is a service that we all need, but just like food and shelter, it is best provided through voluntary and mutually beneficial market exchanges. A careful reading of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution will not reveal any intrinsic right to health care, food, or shelter. That's because there isn't any. This quote-unquote right has never existed in America. Oh, okay. Well, how about we make it a new right? What's wrong with that? And, and then all he's really promoting is that he puts the responsibility on the sick. He puts the onus on the sick. Later in his editorial, he says... Unfortunately, many of our healthcare problems are self-inflicted. Two-thirds of Americans are now overweight, one-third are obese. Most of the diseases that kill us and account for about 70% of all healthcare spending, heart disease, cancer, stroke, diabetes, and obesity are mostly preventable through proper diet, exercise, not smoking, minimal alcohol consumption, and other healthy lifestyle choices. So listen, all you sick people, despite however you may have gotten it, whether it was genetic or uh, who knows what reason one gets cancer, if you just eat better and perhaps shop at Whole Foods, which means you might have to rob somebody or steal money from your brother just to afford a head of lettuce or a slice of meat at that place. So here's what I did. Outside of boycotting Whole Foods, like many people are doing, what I did the other day was impulsive. I don't know why I did it. I went to buy some stevia, which is a sweetener derived from a root, which is very sweet, has no fat in it, no chemicals. It's spectacular stuff. I'm going to be healthy. I usually get the stevia Trader Joe's, which I don't have a problem with in any political way or economic way. I find it irritating. After a while, it starts to grate on you. 
Trader Joe's and how friendly everybody is there and how they package things. And it, it does get irritating, but I just wanted some stevia. They didn't have it. They didn't have the size I wanted. So I knew I could go to Whole Foods and get it, but I'm boycotting Whole Foods as a lifestyle choice that I, I've been doing since before this idiot Mackie made this statement. But I, I have this, these moments of lapse in integrity because I'm thinking to myself, well, look, okay, you're, you, you don't really go there anyway. It's just go get the Stevie. It's not that big a deal. And I went into the Whole Foods. And this is a sellout on my, on my behalf. I, I'm in some ways a scab to my boycott. So I go in. To Whole Foods. I'm like, I'm just going to buy the Stevia. And the Whole Foods in Union Square is a clusterfuck. It's just lines and lines of people. They run people through this maze. They treat you like a rodent. You have to respond to a color and a number. And then you walk, uh, you know, like a, a healthy robot to your cash register person. So I go downstairs. I pick up the Stevia. I'm holding it in my hand. I'm looking at Whole Foods with disgust. I hate everything it represents. On top of hating John Mackey, I hate the idea that people have to pay through the ass exorbitant amounts of money just to have healthy food. It's not right. And I blame John Mackey, but I've always hated Whole Foods for this reason. And I'm holding my little container of Stevia. It's $7.99. And I'm looking at it and I realize, dude, there's no way you're waiting on that line. And you know what? There's no way you're paying for this Stevia. You cannot pay for it. What you're going to do, Mark, is you're going to hold it in your hand in front of you as if you're looking at it and walk right out of the store. So I did that. I held it in front of me because I didn't know. I wanted it to look like, is he stealing that or is he retarded? Is he forgetting that he has it? I, I just wanted to hold it right out in front of me as if to say, I'm leaving with this because I deserve it, because this store sucks, because I don't want to wait online, because the person that runs this operation is a wrong-minded, right-wing, libertarian whack job who just wants poor people to die. That's why I was holding it as if I was uh, the Statue of Liberty with my torch, with my, my container of stevia. Right there, I walked in the outdoor past the security guard, holding it in front of me, looking at it out onto the streets. And I stood there with it, holding it to see if anyone was going to say, you want to pay for that, buddy? Uh, did you forget something, buddy? Uh, you're under arrest. Any of that. Nothing. I waited a few minutes. I probably looked ridiculous holding it. But I waited a few minutes. No one came. I put it in my bag and I felt good. Not only did I not feel guilty, I felt like I wanted to go back and steal more stuff from Whole Foods. It's easy. If you live in a big city, they can't manage that place. They can, they can barely manage the lines. And I say go in. Get yourself some healthy greens, some organic produce, some vitamins if you have no money. And just bring your Whole Food organic hemp bag or whatever. Load it up and just walk out. Walk out through the indoor and if they go, did you pay for that? I'm like, oh, yeah, I did. Or if you, if you pussy out, just say, oh, I forgot because I have a, pro a vitamin deficiency because I've been eating at other places lately. I, I should always shop here because see what happens. I'm sorry. And go back in and pay for it. But I encourage this. Don't boycott Whole Foods. Steal from them. Well, folks, it comes that time now where I, I talk to uh, someone I've known for a long time. I'm, I'm actually announcing this as if this is a regular segment on a show where this is the first episode. But as we do always on this show, I speak to a comedian who I've known forever. I knew him before he changed his name. I knew him before he was funny. 
I knew him when he had a mullet. I knew him <laughs> when he was just Jewish. And now he's something completely different. He, he's, he's, he's more Jewish than ever. He's funnier than ever. He has a new book coming out on September 15th called I Only Roast the Ones I Love. He is the roast master. Uh, Jeffrey Ross, thank you for joining me, my friend. My pleasure, old buddy. That was uh, well said. I, uh, I figure, I'm trying to figure it out. I think I probably know you, you know, almost as long as I've been a comedian. That's about right. I mean, I seem to know things about you from your past, and we've run into, run into each other over the years, but it's got to be twenty over 20 years ago, right? I don't think it's quite that much, but I feel like I've been a witness to your history. But are, are you counting the time when you were Jeff Lifschultz as not existing in comedy? That's Do you, like, it's, like B, it's like BC for me. <laughs> so it doesn't, your comedy career doesn't start till after you change your name? Actually, I did dig up an old headshot of me looking... It's 1989, and I kind of dressed like Andrew Dice Clay because I just figured you had to to be a comedian when I first started. And I found an old headshot of me, and it says Jeff Lifschultz across the bottom of it. And I, I did stick it in my new book, by the way. It was like a leather jacket, right? Yeah, you know, like there was two kind of comedians back then. You either had a, a blazer, like with the sleeves rolled up, yeah, or you had a leather jacket. See, that's where I screwed up. I didn't have either of those. I just had I did goofy things with my glasses, and uh, and everybody else is doing better than me. You always sort of maintain the dress code of a college student, which I respect. Well, thank you very much. I, I'm sort of now moving into the dress code of a college professor. It happens. Once <laughs> once the temples start graying, you can't really pull the college student thing off. You're going to have to leave that to Dimitri Martin. I'm just going <laughs> tweed jacket all the way, man. So, uh, I guess so, it wouldn't be uh, a Mark Marin day unless there was a tinge of bitterness somewhere in there. I, I wish I thought I was bitter. I, I, you know what I'm realizing as I get older, Jeff, is I'm not sure that I see myself clearly. I'm going to have to start believing what people are saying about me or else I'm in trouble. But I, what I wanted to, to talk to you about a little bit is that as I'm getting older, I'm finding that I'm sort of regressing back to, like a lot of people think I'm, I'm a snobby, judgmental, cynical guy, but I have a deep respect for, for comedians. And no one ever asks me, you know, what comedians I like in terms of what I grew up with. And, and when I watch the roast, when I watch you do your thing, I mean, those are the guys that I grew up loving, you know, Buddy Hackett, Don Rickles, uh, anybody was on the roast, Dean Martin, all those old comics that uh, were on those roasts were the guys that really sort of wired my brain for comedy. You too? No, you know, with me, it was a little different. Like I didn't know about those guys when I was a kid. Really? To me, it was more of like the rock star comics, Cheech and Chong and Steve Martin and and the Blues Brothers and well, I Eddie had those. Murphy. Yeah, I had those guys too. Like later, when, I, when I'm talking about, like when I was 10 years old. Then when I was like 12, oh, I, got, I see. Yeah, I got yeah. like Cheech and Chong, Richard Pryor, but George Carlin. I wasn't even aware that those were like, like I can remember sitting at the top of the stairs. You know, I wasn't allowed to watch the Tonight Show. I was too young at that age. So were you? And. And my parents, like I could hear Buddy Hackett, I could hear Don Rickles, but I couldn't see what they looked like. So I guess I got a sense of the timing, but it didn't connect until I was older that comedians were just kind of like regular people who saw the world in a certain way. Well, that's funny because that means that you have taken on, like I actually, when people ask me about you, like for some reason people want to talk to me about comics. Right. And I always put you up there as as a guy i respect because the story i tell is uh did i ever tell you this the the, the movie the shining do you no, know the, this is so flattering that 
No, listen to me. Listen to me. Like in the movie The Shining, at the end of The Shining, where he's talking to that bartender, right? Yeah. And and the bartender uh, says to him, uh, "You've always been here, Mr. Torrance." And and you, and it zooms into that picture from the 1920s, and there's Jack Nicholson at that same party. Like I believe that Jeff Ross has always been in comedy since the beginning of comedy. Wow. Do you like take? That. Do you like it, or you think it's insulting? No, I think that's. The ultimate compliment. I think you have a timeless voice that, if it weren't for you, would no longer be represented in stand-up. For somehow or another, you have sort of summoned the 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 legacy of all of those old school guys and made it new again, specifically by doing the roast. Do you feel like you're part of that? Like you are honoring a tradition that needs to be honored, which is the filthy, rude, insulting Jew bastard? You know, the problem is that I don't hear that enough. What I usually hear is from the old guard is, you've ruined the roast, you've made them too vulgar, you've, they're not private anymore. You know, you know, I, I, Who I, said I that to you? to roller derby territory, according to the Friars Club. Who said that to you? The old guys. Anybody like, over 80, that's like, their take. Like which ones? Name names. <sighs> I don't want to name names. All right. These guys are on their deathbed and... Oh, so uh, then all you got to say to them is like, it's okay. It's okay, Shecky, Jackie, Freddie. I'm going to, I won't do it anymore. Here, let me put a video in for you. Yeah, I mean, really, they think that, but I was under the impression. Now, I, you know, when I was asked to join the Friars Club uh, by Yolan Gold, I don't want to be a name dropper. You know, I, I immediately said, I, wh- why would I want to go there? And they're like, you can use the gym. Like, next to who? A guy smoking? <laughs> <laughs> You can throw the medicine ball around with, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I feel like, you know, some of the guys who, uh, you know, I heard a sort of similar, I read a similar sort of attitude um, in the newspaper once in an interview that George Carlin did. They asked him about the, being roasted in the Friars Club, and he sort of said, you know, that's just not a world I want to be in. But the truth is, if George Carlin had, you know, been around to, you know, 95 years old, he would have gone to the Friars Club every single day. <laughs> no, I think that's true. I, I think that, like, well, he saw himself as an iconoclast. And, but, see, I have a, a, a tremendous respect uh, for that generation of comics. My, my feelings about comedy and what it means and what it should be, it, it, it's, all, it's all changing as I get older. But I find it hard to believe that those guys judge you because I thought that the, the roasts that happened at the club were actually filthier. Yeah, they are. And they used to dig the fact that they were so private. But, you know, at a certain point, it drove me crazy that this was like a lost art. It was like I knew how to roast people. It was like saying I knew jousting meant nothing. It was ridiculous. I might as well join a Renaissance fair and run around, you know, like that old Janine Garofalo joke, wearing a swatch. It was like there was no point to me. And, you know, if memory really recalls, you and some of the other guys would give me crap about you know, putting on a tuxedo and going uptown because, you know, we were all making names for ourselves in the alternative comedy world downtown. And to me, going up and making fun of these old dudes was the ultimate in alternative comedy for a young guy. I think you're right. I, I will I will agree with you because I remember there were years ago we were pitted against each other in an article and it was very bad. Yeah, to me, to me I always saw it as a, you know, like you say, like uh, did these guys influenced me. I don't think they did. I think what draws me to it is that I'm just one of them, born in the wrong time, maybe. Because, exactly. You know, it's just uh, everybody I knew growing up was kind of funny. It wasn't until I moved away, until I went to BU, where I realized that, 
God, people aren't all like my friends. Yeah, right. <laughs> but apparently they all are Jewish. It was a lot of Jews. <laughs> if you went back. to BU. You know, don't forget I'm much, much, much younger than you. Yeah, what are you, 40? One year younger. You're one year younger? You're doing great, though. Jesus. Now, do you have a piece of that thing now or what? The Friars Club? The roast. Oh, uh, no. Well, you know, I get a lot out of it, let's just say. it's uh, It's been really fun. Seeing it, seeing it sort of heightened into like a national pastime is Kind of blows my mind. Well, you know, it was interesting. I think that the last one, the Joan Rivers one, it brought what was great about that is it sort of reminded me a little more because of her gravitas, because of of who she is, that she was actually on those dais with Dean Martin, you know, uh, back when I was a kid, that there seemed to be it seemed a little more respectable than uh, some of the other ones. Yeah, well, you have to realize that she, you know, she's been doing this, you know, like. I felt like I was roasting her vicariously for everybody she's ever made fun of. I mean, I felt like, you know, people say, well, what's your hook? You know, every roast has a different sort of thing. You know, you did the hillbilly roast with Larry the Cable Guy. And you had, like, Flava Flav and his whole crew. But with Joan, it was the whole thing was to go deeper, you know, to hit her harder than we'd ever hit anybody because she's, she's a killer. I mean. She deserved it, but also she could absorb it. And, you know, and, 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 and honestly, it was this the right vehicle to sort of raise the roast to the next level, to almost like make it respectable. I love that. Thank you. I, I felt like uh, it was one of the more memorable roasts. And not just because everybody was having a good time, but, you know, Joan Rivers in her late 70s, like, went up and schooled everybody at the end. I mean, she she's... To be relevant for a comedian at her age is very rare. Well, I think that's what uh, I had a conversation with that with my uh, producer, Brendan, earlier uh, uh, about that was that what you see on those roasts is something pure in the sense that, like, I sit in comedy clubs now and I can't tell the difference between who's doing what joke or what it means. And it just seems to all be a bunch of, you know, garbage. It just seems it, it, it's almost tiring to sit in a comedy club and watch people talk about nothing, about bullshit, about it, and they don't even have a point of view with it. It's just aggravating. It's it's too easy, it seems. But when you watch the roast, at least that is just it's just pure joke telling. It's got a specific focus. It's got an angle. You can be as filthy as you want, and it's just pure joke craft. And it's over in an hour. Thank God. <laughs> I, I, I'll be honest with you. The one roast I did was one of the worst nights of my life. I cried after. What I cried. That? It was the Chevy Chase roast. Yeah, so, I mean, there were fundamental problems with that show. Yeah, you weren't there. No, um, and that's a major part of the problem. <laughs> I I agree. And I'd never it's not done because I would have done so well, or, or that I cared about Chevy Chase. It's because what I heard later from Greg Giraldo, and I'm sure you'll probably agree with this, is I said to Greg at the time, you know, he was complaining about the show afterwards, and I ran into him and I said, "Well, you know, what was Chevy like before the show when you met him?" And he said, "I didn't get to meet him before the show." And I go, "Well, this is a show that needs a producer." Well, he was also a dick. Well, he you have to go in, you have to shake someone's hand, you have to make sure. Look him in the eye, and, and it should all be in good fun. And if the guy's got a bad attitude, you should know about it ahead of time. Well, he did. And, and, and also, the dais was huge. It was like 900 people. I think that like, literally they did an open casting call for anyone with name recognition in New York City to be on that thing. 
Well, that's you, one of the fun things is there's a million targets. I mean, that's why the first There was too many that night, though. Did you see that thing? I don't remember. Oh, my God. And I went up and I don't, you know, look, I, one thing I learned about myself is, is that the only way I can be effectively insulting and funny is if I feel cornered. That, like, for me to just do it, to write abusive jokes, I mean, thank God uh, that enough of them worked that they were able to pull a set out of it. But literally, I walked out of that show up into the room they'd got me with my buddy Sam, who's a writer, and had a nervous breakdown. And literally, it was one of those nights where I, I don't know if you've had them in show business where you're like, what am I doing? What am I, what am I doing? Why uh, am I? D- and, I mean, I didn't see that show. I never saw that roast. But then I then I said, but look, they gave me a nice coach bag, which is pretty good swag. <laughs> the Friars, very classy. They are classy. I wish my cat hadn't peed in it. What did they tell you when they gave you that bag? Get out of town. That's right. They packed my stuff for me. I got up there. My stuff was packed in a bag that they gave me. It's no very- matter how it went, it's a feather in your cap that you did a Friars roast. And, you know, rest assured, now that you've told me the story, you will do another one. Well, I'd like to do another one. I'd like another try. I need another shot. I can do it now. I understand it. And Freddie Roman said something about me like, oh, oh, you know what? In the New York Observer, that guy, he said, because I said, like, you know, I, I drew attention to the fact that I was tanking, right? And out of all the things of the entire evening that Freddie Roman points out about that roast, he says, you know, it's not... Uh, you know, it's, it's not professional to draw attention to the fact that you're not doing well. <laughs> you well, know? if anyone should know, it's him. <laughs> Just plow through it like they love you. Keep smiling. There's a certain, in his world, in the uh, Jewish country club Catskills retirement home world, um, and ships, which he does a lot of, that is true. But now, in your world of being real and being in the moment, that's impossible. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you, you, you got to do it. I don't remember what happened, but I'll tell you, Lisa Lampanelli broke out of that thing. Everybody else was, was negligible. Uh, yeah, I think she, it was just a poorly produced roast. And, you know, Comedy Central, to their credit, they've turned that around and made them really great. And poor Andy Kinler went on after Lisa. And Andy, you know, I don't think has, you know, ever done well anywhere at once. And he had, he had to go on after her. Yeah, she's a killer. And I love Andy, but, you know, part of his thing, I actually, I uh, introduced him this year in Montreal for that State of the Industry address, and I love the guy. I toured with him. I think he's one of the funniest guys in the world. And and we were doing this show, this alternative show, and I actually, he brought me on stage, and I, because he was hosting, and I said, keep it going for Andy Kinler. The comedy is in the trying. Ah. <laughs> So well, how did Carl Reiner, where did he come from? How did that happen on the Joan Rivers roast? Yeah, well, he was, uh, he was on the Joan Rivers roast mainly because he's a, a pal of Joan Rivers. and um, I guess she asked him personally, and I thought he lent a certain gravitas to the whole event Yeah, that we just couldn't muster up with me and Tom Arnold. Tom Arnold, I just ran into him. He gave me his card. He has a card. Oh, wow. Yeah, I ran into him at uh, Doug Benson podcasting. He's a hyper man. That guy is like just all over the place, man. I wonder what's going on with him. Well, I, I tell you one thing it's, that's not going on with him is drugs, and he's very proud of that, and he'll tell you that over and over again. Yeah, but that's what Courtney Love used to say. I've been sober for a year. You know? Yeah, but even before, he's always like hyper like that. I, may, I, I don't know. I met him with uh, that guy, Dax Shepard. Right, they're buddies. Yeah, well, also, let's, let's discuss this book. Is this a how-to or what? It's got a very uh, strong how-to element to it. Oh, my sort of tricks of the trade for making fun of people. And and um, and I do reveal some secrets for writing roast jokes. You do? Yeah. 
All right. Well, I better read it then. It's pretty, it's pretty, um, you know, you're not supposed to really deconstruct your comedy too much, but for whatever reason, I, I felt like I couldn't keep doing this without passing it on. Holy shit. That's where I've been going wrong. All I do is deconstruct my comedy to the point where that's what my act is. So what's this thing? It says that uh, in the book you had a relationship saved by Tom Cruise. Well, I'll tell you the, I'll tell you the teaser for it is, you know, I did Dancing with the Stars. I'm not proud of it. We all make mistakes in our life. Was that really a mistake? Do you really think it was a mistake? You knew what you were getting into. What the hell did you think was going to happen? Well, I thought I was going to win. <laughs> <laughs> and I got eliminated on the first episode. Yeah. On the premiere, literally the premiere of the show. Yeah. I got the lowest score in the show's history. <laughs> Good for you. I got a lower score than when Heather Mills' fake leg flew off. <laughs> it was... It couldn't have gone worse. I got poked in the eye. I got a scratch cornea at rehearsal. Danced against doctor's orders. It was heartbreaking. I got a 12 out of 30. Cloris Leachman got a higher score. And she wasn't even dancing. Her partner just dragged her around the dance floor like Weekend at Bernie's. It was, it was nothing short of mind-boggling. <laughs> yeah. And I get eliminated. And... I don't know it yet because there's a voting. So then you come back the next night, you put on your ridiculous outfit. My eye is starting to heal. And if I can just get through the scoring, um, then I, I can dance. I'm safe. Yeah. And you dance. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's like big. At 12 weeks, I'm rehearsing. You know how it is. You know how I, back in the day, comedians could sing, dance. They were showmen. This was my way of, Paying homage to the I, great show. I, I did that for my first wedding, I remember. <laughs> I, I learned how to dance, and that didn't help anything. Ultimately. I did the cha-cha-cha. Yeah, okay. And, you know, it, it, it looked like a, it was a telethon, but I got through it. <laughs> the next day... People were sending in money. <laughs> yeah, we raised $4 million for muscular <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm getting dressed, and I just want to not be the last place couple. Yeah. I want to do my makeup dance. Yeah. I want to like redeem myself. Mm -hmm. I have a better routine the second night. Uh -huh. And, you know, the stakes couldn't be higher. There's 23 million people watching. And, you know, you're working five weeks on it. Your ego is, you know, you're totally committed. Yeah. You're on a reality show. You become a lunatic. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, my buddy Sal, he's a writer on Jimmy Kimmel, Cousin Sal. Yeah. So he texts me. He sends me a text message to my trailer, my phone. I'm putting on my ascot. I'm putting on tucks and tails. Yeah. It's crazy. And it says, you're safe. Don't tell anyone. And, you know, they work at ABC. I'm figuring I'm good to go. You know, I'm going to live to see another Mambo. It's been fixed. And my family's in the audience. They're all in eye patches and solidarity. The <laughs> yeah. like, Chris Rock calls me up. He's like, forget the dance and think of some jokes. <laughs> Did he really? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just, I know everyone I ever met and will meet is watching this. That's the feeling. Yeah. And I know that I'm going to be okay. I'm safe. And 12 couples, 11 couples get a live safe and then they get to dance. I'm sitting there for all, over two hours. It's a three-hour, two-night premiere. And it gets down to me and Kim Kardashian. You know who she is? From E? I guess. I don't, I don't know who she is, but I, uh, yeah. I, so she's like a socialite, 
sex tape, super hottie, super popular. Right. And it was like a commercial break, and the producer comes over and looks at me and Kim Kardashian. Now I know we're safe, you know, like I've been told by my buddy. He's like my best friend. And, and uh, what I'm forgetting is he's like a, you know, like chronic pranker. You know, he's been messing with me for like 10 years. Yeah. He once threw me in the pool at Adam Carolla's wedding. He once spray-painted all the punchlines to my jokes um, on my Porsche. It was very, <laughs> you know, he's really messed with me before, but th- I, he knows that how much this show means to me. And i got to imagine, you know, he's giving me straight info. You trusted him. Absolutely. Fell for it, hook, line, and sink. Oh, beautiful. Produ- producer comes over, looks at me and Kim Kardashian during the commercial, and he's like, okay, uh, one of you is going to dance and the other one is going to come over to this mark and you're going to make a farewell speech to the country and thanks for playing on the dance with the stars and he's looking right at me the whole time it's starting to sink in that <laughs> <laughs> something was wrong here you know? and uh i'm not i don't let it get to me but, you know the, the, the play on music comes back and my my partner is like digging her fingernails into my hand you know she's already poked me in the eye once <laughs> You know, I'm waving to my family. I'm stretching. I know I'm about to do my, my quick step. Yeah. Which is like an old-timey movie star dance all around the floor. It's tucks and tails, mm-hmm. and I'm throwing karate kicks. and Frank Sinatra music. I get a kick out of you. Like, right, yeah. It's going to bring the house down. Yeah. And Tom Bergeron's like, and the couple with the combined lowest score, blah, blah, blah. Jeff, an editor. You just see me mouth. What the <laughs> exactly. And Kim Kardashian does her dance. I'm like trembling. I go to my mark and put the microphone. How are you feeling right now? And I go, this is a nightmare. I have no <laughs> jokes. I have nothing. I'm like, I'm completely caught off guard. I might as well have my pants pulled down. Yeah. And this guy, Sal, was just effing with me the entire time. Right. So they whisk me off to the Jimmy Kimmel show, because whenever you get voted off, you go right to Jimmy Kimmel for your post-dancing interview. Yeah. I'm still in this ridiculous costume with an eye patch and an ascot. And, and I literally I go out to the segment with my dance partner, and Sal just bum-rushes me on the set. And they keep replaying me going, what the fuck? Slow motion. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's just... The most painful, embarrassing, ridiculous thing. And he's just messing with me and rubbing it in. And he's claiming that it's his best prank of all time. He would do it a hundred times over. And then this goes on, Mark, for months, for like two months. He's like living high off this prank. And he's just rubbing it in. He's like my best buddy. And I just can't take it anymore. And it's just killing me because I'm not hanging out with all my friends. Like, he, you know, they... Every Sunday, Jimmy Kimmel has, like, Sunday football. So I'd go up there and hang with the writers from the man show from back in the day. You know, we were all good pals. But, yeah. You know, Sal's like the king. Yeah. I don't want to go. I don't want to deal with it. I'm too pissed at him. And it just escalates where we're not talking now, going on three months. Finally, I get the confidence, you know, just to go up there. And Jimmy's always cooking something homemade, and he's like a chef. And I just missed the other guys, and I figured I wouldn't let... Sal, keep me from my regular Sunday ritual. And I get in there, and Sal's kind of nervous, jittery, like, there's definitely, like, some tension. And I've been hearing about this. I've been on the road for months. People are yelling, 
you know, fuck Sal, and, and I should have punched him in the face. Like, it's gotten to a point now where everybody knows about it, so it's, it's really like eating at both of us. It's, you know, you don't want bad blood out there amongst friends. Or amongst the country. Exactly. I'm at Disney World with my nephews, taking them on, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean, and some lady walks up to me, and she's like, you should have punched that fucking fat fuck in the face. <laughs> I'm like, my nephew's like... <laughs> so, whatever. I'm at Jimmy's house, yeah. and I don't know. I'm, we're both a little nervous. Nobody's really talking about it. It's definitely awkward. And Tom Cruise walked in Jimmy's house. It's like, there's been famous people around there before, but it's like, nothing like this. You know, it's like... Not Tom Cruise. Nobody can kind of believe that Tom Cruise is there. We're like, we look back outside, like, is that really him coming up the steps? And then we're looking around for like the helicopter or the security detail or the yeah. tank or whatever he's, he rolls with. And it's just his mom carrying a box of cupcakes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it takes like 10 minutes for that like craziness to sort of settle down. And is everybody just trying to act normal? We're trying, but like Jimmy's uncle, Frank, he grabs him by the arm and he like pushes me in front of Tom Cruise. He's like, hey, Tom, this is my favorite comedian, Jeff Ross. Yeah. And I'm all nervous and shake Tom Cruise's hand. I don't think he'll remember me. He goes, hey, Jeff Ross, we met at Matt Lauer's roast in New York. Oh. So I'm like, oh, he remembers that. You know, that was cool. Like, you know, whatever, Tom Cruise has some chicken parmesan that Jimmy made and his mom is mingling and everybody's kind of like, this is cool. Tom Cruise is here. Suddenly, Sal, who hasn't talked to me since he sent me that message, since I almost killed him, he sits down next to me and he goes, let's let Top Gun over here settle our dispute. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, Tom Cruise will decide who's right and who's wrong and who should apologize. I'm like, all right. You know, I got nothing to lose. You know, I'm totally in the right. This guy pranked me on national television. He's supposed to be my friend. Yeah. And he's just using, you know, this to, like, you know, further his career when he should have been looking out for me on a big night. And I go, anybody can see this, especially Tom Cruise, who's played, like, so many righteous attorneys in the past. <laughs> but he has actual on-the-dais experience where he knows the difference between making fun of somebody to their face and, like, pranking them behind their back. So Sarah Silverman's there. She gets up on a coffee table. She tells the whole story to Tom Cruise. He agrees to be moderator. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why, it's, but he did it. Yeah. I think he was just getting a kick out of how, like, petty and childish Sal and I were. Yeah. And I realize it might get heated, so I say, hey, Tom, is it all right? You know, I know your mom's here. You know, is it all right if I, like, I might curse a few times? You know, like, I kind of whisper at him. The mom overhears, and he looks at his mom, and his mom. Gives him the nod, and he goes, no. <laughs> no cussing. So the guy's like an eyes wide shut, banging random broads, and I can't say dirty words. Right. So we go through the whole story about like how Dancing with the Stars went down, and my history with Sal, and like all the other times he's messed with me and put me in headlocks at the man show, and the time that he like sprayed milk behind my desk at my man show office, and I had to crawl around trying to figure out what died under my desk <laughs> weeks. You know, just all the crap he's done to me. Once I was uh, co-hosting in the early days of Jimmy Kimmel Live, you'd go in five days in a row and you'd be like the guest co-host. Right, I remember. And every day, right before yeah. airtime, they would order me dinner, a steak, and every day uh, 
So I would walk in my dressing room just as I took the first bite and pick the steak up and throw it on the floor. (laughs) 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 Which sounds funny now, but when you have low blood sugar like me, it was very aggravating. Not so funny. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But this is like the worst thing he's ever done to me. This like, you know, texting me right before the elimination on Dancing with the Stars. And, And I did sort of blame myself. I explained to Tom Cruise that my mentor, Buddy Hackett, used to, used to tell me, you know, like, shut your phone off, don't take any calls an hour before a big show, you owe it to your audience to sort of focus. But I ignored all that because it was Dancing with the Stars and I wanted people to be able to call me and it was exciting. So anyway, I took some responsibility, but in the end, after about an hour-long sort of back and forth, which got very emotional at times, Tom Cruise just sort of shut us all down and he decided that Sal hurt my feelings and that he should apologize. And Sal did. That's spectacular. Pretty crazy, right? There was no, uh, you can't handle the truth. It was a lot of those kind of jokes, but Tom Cruise mostly rolled his eyes and made a better joke. Oh, really? Yeah, we tried to, uh, you know, keep it light, but it got emotional because, you know, to me it goes to the very heart of, like, what I do. You know, like, when I roast people, I do it to their face. It's, volunteer. Yeah. it's also about friendship. And Sal will, you know, like if like if you break your leg, I'll I'll visit you in the hospital and I'll try to cheer you up. Right. Sal will break your leg just so he can make jokes about it. About you being in the hospital. It's a different thing. Yeah. Well, that's an awesome story, buddy. So you're uh, you're are you working tonight? No, I got tomorrow night. I'm here at the Borgata in Atlantic City. All right. Well, this is uh, this probably won't be up by then, but uh, it was great talking to you. And, uh, yeah, if, if I'm understanding you properly, you're going to get me on a roast. That would be my mission for the foreseeable future. But, you know, the, the, it has to be somebody that you respect and admire. You can't go up with, with any sort of, you know, animosity in your heart. That's the key. I'm, I'm getting rid of that anyway. So I, by the time this happens, it'll be gone. Yeah, so if you go into it with a fresh perspective and it's somebody that you can really, like, dig into, then... You're going to kill, I guarantee it. I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for talking to me, Jeff. I'll talk fun, to you Mark. soon. Okay, bye. All right, that was comedian Jeff Ross. His new book is called I Only Roast the Ones I Love. And you know, he said he was just going to do a little teaser. That's how I'm going to tease the Tom Cruise story from the book, by telling the entire fucking story. But it was great. You know, Jeff has got something very comforting in his delivery. His tone is, it's exactly what I said. It's like listening to the history of Jewish show business. There's just a cadence that you can follow back right from him all the way back to probably Myron Cohen or whoever it was who performed for the pharaohs in Egypt to keep from being killed. But uh, I think we should leave this part on the podcast. Whatever just happened. The, the abrupt stop, because I didn't know what was supposed to happen, although I did on some level know what was supposed to happen. And then the, the seamless segue into my next WTF story, which happens to revolve around Ralph Lauren. I don't shop at Ralph Lauren. Oh, now I can't do the R and the L at the same time. I have a speech impediment. I have rolling L's, and I say them like R's. Because I don't put my tongue at the top of my mouth. 
I'd say L's like R's, like la, la. That's the right way. But I go la, la. So there, it's from my throat. Doesn't matter. I'm wandering around Melrose because I got a spot at the improv on Melrose in Hollywood. And uh, next to the improv, there is an RLR store, a Ralph Lauren rodeo store. I didn't know that's what it was. I just thought it was a store. So I walk into the store and it's high-end clothes that look like they're used, kind of. They're, they're, I guess the angle is these are vintage styles redone by Ralph Lauren on this RLR label. I looked at a jean jacket in there before I realized where I was, and it was $3,600. Now, if that isn't a what-the-fuck moment, I don't know what is. And even after I said to the guy, I said, what's with this jacket? How it was a Levi's jacket. And I, I said, how is it possible that this is that much money? And a bigger question, how is it possible there, there would be a moron that would pay that much money for a Levi's jacket? And then he says, well, that's one of the original jackets. That's like uh 1950 blah, blah, blah model. Uh, it's brand new. Can't you see by the double stitching and the denim, the denim was done on these, on these uh, looms that took time to make it what denim used to be back when I bought pants when I was a kid, when they had time to make pants and they weren't letting them be made elsewhere, 20 pants a minute, whatever. It was a, a very tough denim. And he's telling me about the seams and how I can tell whether it's an original Levi's jacket. And of course I'm thinking, oh, okay, well then, sure, that's a reasonable price then. $3,600 for a jean jacket. Do I look like a moron? But I respected the museum quality of it, and it did lead me to think that, you know, back in the day, when I was a kid, you bought a pair of Levi's, they felt like they would last you a lifetime, and somehow in my mind, they did last a lifetime. They at least lasted three grades, or until you grew to the next, you know, length. And I have this problem, I, and I've overcome the problem, or I've, I've compromised my integrity around this issue, around buying clothes that look used, pre-faded jeans or jeans that you know look like they've been peed in or yeah, jeans that have you know the scrapings on them. I, I never wanted to do that because I thought to myself, you know, I break in my own pants. I don't need help. But then it became a fashion. It wasn't so much about them looking like you'd worn them. It was just about how that particular fade looks and what have you. And then during my second marriage, I somehow got cajoled into buying upscale jeans that looked like they had been broken in. But I didn't really know the history of that situation. And I was at the RLR store and I'm looking around and he tells me it's a mixture of vintage clothing, as that jacket was, and, and new clothing based on vintage designs. And I saw a belt. And this belt looked like it had been not just used, but, but used a lot. Like it was worn in. It looked like it had about 20 years of wear on it. It was a brown belt. There were... It looked like it had been worn in at at least three of the holes, and it was all beat up. And I go, so this is a used piece? He goes, no, that's, a, that's brand new. And I said, well, how the hell is that possible? And it was $350. And I'm thinking to myself, come on. You know this was just made in a, some sort of Guatemalan or Indonesian sweatshop, and you're going to you know, sell it here for $350? But then I rethought it. I thought, well... They probably gave that belt to a kid when he was 10 
And he had to wear it for 20 years. I mean, he had to wear it in. So it had, you know, he'd gone through three waist sizes. And you got to figure we were sort of attached to that belt by the time they took it away from him to sell it at RLR. And I thought, well, I mean, maybe because of that kid's pain and, and his attachment to the belt and his commitment to the belt, that it would be worth, you know, maybe $200, but not $350. And the sad part about this story is that even when I was thinking about it being made in an Indonesian sweatshop, I didn't really question the morality of that. I just questioned the morality of, of paying that much for a belt. So I think as a compromise, what I'd like to offer up to you is that I, I'd be willing to pay 200 for that kid's, you know, feelings being hurt after they were wrestling that belt away from him. Yeah, because he was probably making just pants at age 10, and then they gave him the belt as probably an, an award of some kind for making the most pants without eating or sleeping. And then, you know, after 20 years with this belt in that same factory, they're like, you, you got to give us the belt. Look, we fed you well. That's why we, you know, we got it worn in on three holes. You got to give up the belt. And that's a sad moment. That's a heartbreaking moment. So I, I might be willing to pay that much. I might go back and buy that belt for that kid who had to let it go. It's like a pet or anything else. I get very attached to my belts. I'm in the process of breaking in some belts right now. I've been going on six years and I, it doesn't look like I've made a dent in them. You got to start young with that stuff. Well, thank you, folks. That was it. That was the um, birthing, the baptism, the the first, the pilot episode of WTF with Mark Marin. I am Mark Marin. You've been listening to me. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com. WTF pod is the handle or the name. You can email the show WTF pod at gmail.com. We're going to be doing another one soon. We're hoping to get this up a couple of times a week. In the near future, we'll be figuring out just how we want to keep doing it. See how many people come on board. So I hope you had fun. And remember, don't be afraid to ask yourself and others and the world around you, what the fuck? And don't be afraid as well to say, nah, what the fuck? <laughs>